And we're going to be back in the book of Romans this morning. So if you're not there, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15. The conference that I was preaching at uh, last week was on the five solas of the, uh, of the Reformation. And you, you know what those are. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, and faith alone, and grace alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And I, I always give you the, the first fruits, and so they got the three men that you, you saw in uh, several weeks back, even as the, the bridge between uh, the book of Romans and our, our former exposition. But one of the solas we, we didn't cover. We covered all of them. You remember Wycliffe with Sola Scriptura and uh, Sola Fide and, uh, um, and uh, Grace alone was, was, was Luther and uh, uh, Solus Christus was, uh, was, uh, was John Rogers. But we didn't get to the, to the glory of God alone. And so I, I had to pick somebody else to, uh, to, to do it. And honestly, it's kind of hard to find a reformer, a single man, who kind of encapsulates all of those, all of those solas to, uh, together. So I finished the conference by using the Apostle Paul, who was really the inspiration for, for all of the of the Reformation, but I did that because I don't think there was anyone who ever exemplified the, the motto to the glory of God alone greater than, than Paul. In fact, it's been said that the Apostle Paul is the, the greatest Christian who ever lived. And when you start thinking about that, that's, it's hard to, to argue with, with, with that. And he was someone who wrote the, the greatest epistle ever written. The book of Romans, the one that you have open before you this morning, which we're walking through verse by, by verse. And we, we say that about Paul and about this epistle because Paul truly lived for the, the glory of God alone. And Romans is all about God. It's, it's, it's all about the, the gospel. And, um, and we also know Paul wasn't always like that, was he? He had a perspective change on the, the road to, uh, to Damascus. And after he met the risen Christ, Paul was never the, the same. Um, there, was a, there was a change in the way that, that he saw himself and, and all of life. Stephen Nichols, uh, in his little book called Church History in Five Minutes, it's a little devotional, highly recommended to you, it's great, um, said this, the term navel-gazing refers to an excessive focus and concentration on self. Every person since Adam is part of this belly-button generation. Like infants who have just discovered their belly buttons, we are captivated with ourselves. And that might be okay for infants not to be much aware of the world beyond themselves, but as we grow up, we, we need to see that there's a world around us, or we'll live very shallow lives. At some point, we must outgrow our fascination with self. And I would say the only way that that transformation takes place is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's a, it's a really good way to describe the redirection that that happens in the gospel. I mean, rather than, than starting with our own belly button, we, we become enthralled and awed at the, the transcendent grace and greatness and magnitude and vastness of, 
of God. I mean, in the gospel, we realize that there is something much larger than ourselves, and, and that something is someone, and he's the, he's the creator. And then, and then we, we rightly measure ourselves in light of him, and that puts everything in, in perspective. I think it's a really good way to summarize uh, what Paul says and why he says what he says in the introduction. And we looked at last time in Romans 1 through 7. Paul describes himself and he describes the message he proclaims in light of God, in light of who God is. You remember, he says, I'm, a, I'm an own slave, I'm a called apostle, and I'm a separated instrument uh, under the gospel. And, and he was all of that because he encountered the one that, that he preached about. And then he describes the, the person that he met. Look, look if you would at verse 2. The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. His message was all about the gospel of God's Son. It was, it was a fulfillment, actually, of, of the promise that God made in the Old Testament, not something new, something old. And, and that promise was centered on Jesus Christ, who, was, who came as the humble Son of God and then was exalted, or humble Son of David, exalted as the, the Son of God. He's reigning, He's coming again. And Paul says, that's, that's my life, that, that's what I preach, that's the gospel that I preach. And I do that to bring about the obedience of faith, primarily amongst the Gentiles, which which you Romans are, are part of. Or, or simply, here's who I am, here's what I preach, here's why I do it, and here's where you, you fit in. But right after introducing himself, in light of who Christ is, Paul explains the reason that he's writing uh, to, to the Romans. In verse 8, Ryan read it for us. He says, first... I thank my God concerning Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout uh, the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of His Son, is my witness how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in, in coming to you. Paul explains the reason that he's writing to to, to the Romans. Why he is sending this very long letter and why he wants them to... To, to listen to it. And he does it in a very personal way. We're still in this first section, the, the theme, the gospel of God's righteousness, and Paul's introducing that. So this is the introduction in verses 1 through 17. In verses 1 through 7 is Paul's introduction. Verses 8 through 15 we'll look at today is, is his personal prayer and, and, and the reason, the purpose for, uh, for, this, for this whole letter. And he, he, he says, I'm praying about you in verses 8 through 10. I'm longing to come to you. Look at verse 11. I long to, to see you. I'm informing you of why I haven't come yet. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, in verse 13. And I'm doing all of that because I'm obligated by God to reach you in, in verse 14. I'm under obligation to, to Greeks and Jews. Paul says, I, I'm giving God thanks that he's fulfilling his covenant promise, and, and I'm praying that I can come and be part of that, which God's doing in, in your midst. And specifically, when I come, I, I want to I impart some spiritual gift uh, to you, and I want to be encouraged by you, and, and I'm informing you why I haven't been able to, to come yet. It's because of God's providence. Uh, 
He decides when and, and what we do. And, and I'm doing all of this, and I'm seeking to come because I'm a divine debtor. I'm obligated to, to preach the gospel to all, to all Jews, all Gentiles, and, and that includes you. I think it's a good way to, to summarize the, the, these verses. And it's, again, it's a very personal way. So we'll call it four expressions of Paul's prayerful purpose in, in writing. He says, I'm gratefully praying, verses 8 through 10. I'm continually longing, verses 11 and 12. I'm humbly apprising, or humbly informing, verse 13. And then he says all of that because I'm divinely obligated, in verses 14 and, and 15. If you didn't get that, they'll come up one at a time. But first, he says, I am gratefully praying. Paul starts with, with prayer, and he, and he defines what he's praying and who he's praying to and what he's praying about. He says, I'm, I'm gratefully praying to God concerning you, uh, for you, and to come to you. If you would at verse 8. First of all, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the, the whole world. Now, isn't it a blessing whenever you get an email or a card from somebody who tells you that they have been praying for you, and, and you know that, that they're not just saying that, but they actually have? That's the first thing that Paul tells them here. He says, first of all, and I, want, I don't know if you picked up on this as we just kind of breeze through those verses, but there's no corresponding second. He says, first of all, and you're waiting for Paul to say, and second, and third, but he doesn't. It's like saying, let me begin by telling you you're the topic of my prayers. It's, it's to focus on, on the fact that, that you are, when I talk to God, you're on my lips. So the first thing that I want you to know about me is I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. But the first thing I want uh, to say about you is I give God thanks. And I give God thanks that you're part of His saving work. Now, now that'll make your ears perk up. Um, we all love to hear our own names. And maybe the Romans say, I, I want to listen. Well, what are you praying about, Paul? So Paul's still in the, the standard letter-writing practice, the greeting in verses 1 through 7, and he immediately follows up, uh, follows up by expressing something about who he's writing to and why. We do this all the time. Uh, in, in, uh, we, we say things when we, when we just send a letter or, uh, or an email to somebody. Uh, how wonderful it was to see you uh, last time we spoke or... I hope Mary and the kids are okay. Uh, what a great Christmas card. The reason I am writing is blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's just natural. Well, that's exactly what Paul's doing here. He's doing the same thing. Paul was thanking God because of their faith and requesting that he might be able to visit them. In fact, those two things go together. I mean, Paul gives God thanks for saving the Romans... As he does that, he begins to think about these believers are in the capital city of the Gentile world. I mean, what a praiseworthy thing. And, and as he's thinking uh, about this and thanking God for it, no doubt his desire grows to be able to visit them. And, and then he calls out to God, I want to go. <laughs> um, let me go. I've been trying to go, Lord, in your timing, but, but, but let me go. I understand this, and you might too if you were on one of these trips just a little bit over the past few years. You, you know I have a friend in, in, in Israel uh, named Boaz, and I've witnessed to him many times, and you also know over the last two years, because of COVID, we planned and had to postpone our 
trip to Israel four times. Plane tickets and books and getting ready to go, and then at the last month we're not able to go. But every time we begin to, to plan that, it gets closer. Are we going to go? Are we not going to be able to go? The closer it would get, I, I would have to talk to Boaz. I'd begin to think about him, and as I begin to think about him, uh, uh, I'd begin to pray about him, pray that the Lord would save him and open his heart, and, and, and sometimes even think, what was I going to, to say to him? I would even imagine some of the places that, that we go, and boy, that would be a great place. I hope Boaz hears the gospel right, right there. And, and Lord willing, I'm, gonna, uh, I'm a few weeks away of, uh, of being there again, not with a group, but to see a facility for training TES students and lay out some, some coursework. But, but I began to talk to him again and begin to pray for him more fervently and, and think of him. Paul does the same thing. But he begins by directing his, his prayer in a specific direction for a specific reason. Look at verse 8. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. He, he starts the, the thanksgiving by directing it to the Lord. He's telling them, I, I'm, I, I'm praying to God concerning you, but I'm praying to God. And, and he says, he's my God. Uh, Paul marvels over the Galatians. I marvel that you've, you've so quickly departed from the gospel of grace. Here he gives thanks to God for, for the Romans' faith. And he addresses his thanksgiving in a very personal way. I mean, he gives thanks to my God. He doesn't say, I thank the sovereign creator. I, I thank the Lord Almighty concerning you. He, there's surely a time for that. That'll come in, in Romans. He says, uh, like David does in Psalm 23, I, I thank my God. You know the psalm that you love, the personal connection there is what's so breathtaking about the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. It's intimate. It's personal. God, uh, Paul does the same thing in Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. You're not I, but Christ that lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, personal. He says, I, I'm just a, he's not just the Savior of the world or, the, or your Savior. He's my Savior. That's who I'm talking to. That's who I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm telling him about, about you. He's not just aping chants or crowing words to some distant deity. He's praying to his Father. And when you pray, you should pray the same way. I mean, listen, don't waste the blessed privilege of, of prayer um, by speaking to God in, in a wooden or, or a distant way. Um, talk to Him like a friend. Pour out your heart to, to the Lord. He, he wants to listen to you. You don't have to have perfect words whenever you, you talk to God. He already knows what you're thinking anyway. In fact, prayer, it, it's, it's, it changes you. It, it changes that perspective that, that, that life is not about me. I, I'm, I'm so captivated by, by my, my circumstances and and you take those before the Lord, and it reorients you. And prayer's the one of, prayer's one of the sweetest gifts that God has given us by, by His grace. I mean, I love to teach. Uh, yesterday, we had a new members class, and there were 27 folks there in front of me, and 
and on Saturday, and I could just I could just teach about the Lord all day long. I love talking about you and Timberlake and Christ and the church, and I love to study, uh, to preach. Uh, that's what I did when I left the new members class. I love people. I, I love helping them find Jesus for the first time, or or return to Him if if uh, if they've lost sight. But the one thing I would not give up above anything else is my prayer time with the Lord. I really mean that. If I had to choose to give something up, prayer would be the last thing on my list. He's my God, and I get to talk to Him. And He listens to me. I mean, He really listens to me. And He communes with me. And He fellowships with me. Not literally walking in the cool of the day like Adam, but because I've been reconciled to Him through Jesus Christ, I fellowship with the Lord in prayer. And you do too. And he says that relationship is only possible through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 8. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Look at how he loads that sentence up. He gives God thanks through Jesus Christ. When you say at the end of your prayer, in Jesus' name, you're, you're declaring something. It's not just like a tagline at the end of the prayer. I mean... You're acknowledging that the way that you approach the Father, the reason that He's your Father, the way that you get to God is through Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12, There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ has turned God from an enemy to an Abba, He's the door, He's the way, He's the bread from heaven, He's the only mediator between God and man, not Pope, not Mary, not a priest, not anyone else. You don't need me, you can go direct to God through Jesus Christ because He is at the right hand of the Father. What a blessed privilege we have to be able to approach the Lord. And that's why Paul says the good news of God is all about Him. And he gives thanks regarding the, the Romans in a, in a very specific way. Look, look if you would, at, um, at verse 8 again. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. And now we get to what he's praying. Because of your faith, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the, the whole world. He gives thanks that their faith is, is, is known everywhere. He simply means he's, he's giving God thanks that there's believers in, in, in Rome. And others, uh, other Gentiles know about it. I mean, this is not just a praise for them individually. This is a praise for where the gospel has spread. That's what he's thanking God for. It, it, it's thanks to God. It's my God. And, and I'm doing that through Jesus Christ because God is fulfilling his promise. I mean, Paul is giving thanks to God because the believers in Rome are evidence that the Lord is fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament. You remember what he says in verse 2? Look, look back at verse 2. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. God made a promise spoken of by the prophets in the Old Testament. It was recorded in the Scriptures, it was centered on the Son, and proof that, that that has now dawned and that God is fulfilling that promise is that there were Roman Christians. They're Christians in the very heart, the very pagan capital of the world. 
That's evidence that God's fulfilling the Old Testament. You realize the Great Commission was first given in the Old Testament. It was first given in Genesis 12. God promised Abraham in Genesis 12 that, that the world would be blessed through him. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and your father's house to a land which I will show you. I, I will bless you and make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's a, the great commission. Go and I will. I, you'll reach, I'll reach all of the families of the earth through you. He repeats it in Genesis 15. And he took him, that's Abraham or Abram, outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if, if you're able to count them. And he, and he said to them, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord and, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. He, he told Abraham that he would be a father of many nations, and meaning people all over the world, both Jew and Gentile, would, would come to God by faith through the promised seed of, of Abraham. Abraham is, is not our father by blood. He, he's our... Is our father by, by faith. And Paul says that's happening. It's happening. It's happening in the, very, in the very capital of the Gentile world, and I'm giving God thanks for that. And people all over the Roman world are talking about it, the very capital city itself, all over the empire. People are talking about Christ. People are, are talking about their, their faith. And not only does he, he pray about them, he prays for them, though. Look at verse 9. Pray to God concerning you and, and also for you. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of the Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. And now we'll, we'll get to how Paul viewed his prayer in a minute but and what he was praying about in particular. He's praying about the gospel penetrating, but there's more. But it's important to, to note here that that Paul is unceasingly making mention of them. He's not just thanking God, he's mentioning them. He's doing it often. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear uh, pray without ceasing, or I'm unceasingly. It, it doesn't mean that, that Paul prays constantly. He's just sitting here, Romans, 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 Romans. He, it just means he prays for them regularly. Unceasingly means he doesn't forget. It, it's, he prays for them habitually. He prays for them routinely. And it's a recurring part of, his, part of his prayer life. Paul is never off duty. And neither are you, for that matter. You don't check your Christianity at the door. It's not something that you, you turn off and on. It's the very heartbeat of your life. And you, you may read that, and you say, well, I mean, okay, I mean, yeah, I mean that's, that's an apostle. That's what apostles do. Right? They take the gospel, they pray for people, they do spiritual things. So that's what men in ministry do, especially the first ones. And you might think that until you realize that Paul had no apostolic responsibility for these people. He has no pastoral responsibility for this church. In fact, they don't even know him. He's writing to introduce himself. And yet he prays for them like this anyway. I think it's a reminder and maybe a rebuke that, that we should pray about the, the, work, the work that God is doing even outside of Timberlake. Do, do you pray for Timberlakers? I hope you do. Isn't it amazing 
you, you pray for those that just went through the waters of baptism a couple of weeks ago. You pick out one and you say, I'm going to pray for, pray for him, I'm going to pray for her, or new members, or people in your Sunday school class that, that, that you know. This is missionary prayer. This is giving God thanks for what he's doing somewhere outside of where, where Paul is, outside of Paul's sphere of, of, of influence. No doubt the, the demands, even the burden of the churches that, that Paul had planted was heavy on his heart, and, and yet he still took time to, to pray for the Roman believers and, and thank God for Christ's work there. Let's put our prayers to test this morning. You may think of your prayers like a bullseye. You know, there's, there's something that you primarily focus on in the middle, and then there's centric rings out, outside of that. How far out do you pray? Who, who's in the middle? Say, sadly, most of the time it's us, right? I mean, and most of the time, what we're praying for is, is, is tangible things, physical things. Keep me healthy, help me to, to go here safely, give me traveling mercies. We're, we're talking about physical things. Do you pray for spiritual things for yourself? Do you pray that God will help you overcome temptation, keep you from the evil one, uh, help you grow whenever you come to church in the morning? Lord, I'm really distracted from this past week, and and I want to I hear what you have to say. So press aside the distractions whenever I, I come in on Sunday morning. You pray, for, you pray for spiritual things? If you don't, you're missing the blessing of prayer. You pray for more than yourself? People in your church, outside of your church? Do you, do you give God thanks for, for his name being spread around the world? Uh, you pray for the brothers in Malawi, the sisters in Zambia, Burundi? Italy, France, China, Nepal, Nepal. I mean, the gospel is spreading all over the, the world. And you say, I know that. But to hear about how it's spreading in one of those places I mentioned and to know specific, a specific church that's there, where it's happening, reading about that, that, and that informs your prayer and you're thanking God for that, that will transform an aspect of your, of, of your prayer life. And Paul's prayers didn't have himself in the, in the bullseye. It was Christ. And they went beyond his immediate circle, went beyond his personal friendships, even his own churches. They, they went to people that he didn't know. And in fact, one of the things he is praying was, was to be able to get to them. And he said he's been praying that for some time now. Look, if you would, at, at verse 9. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of, of the gospel of his Son is my witness how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. Uh, Paul, tell, Paul now tells us what he prays so often. It's that he might be able to visit them. He's been trying for, for a while with no success. And he calls God as his witness about his prayer. That's a pretty serious thing to do when you think about it. I mean, I understand we're, uh, we're weak and we're frail, and sometimes we, we, we'll, we'll hear about something, and you'll say, we'll say, I'll pray for you. And then you'll remember that you forgot to do that. If we would say something like, God is my witness, I will pray for you, you probably, that ups the ante a little bit. You probably better make sure you do that. That's what Paul says here. God is my witness. How, how I, I habitually bring you before him and habitually give thanks for you and, and how I ask and plead with him to be able to, uh, uh, to come. 
And he says, this is the God that, that I serve. He's my Lord, and I serve him out of worship. Uh, for, for, for God whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of the Son, to serve is a, is a word that, that's like priestly service. It's worship of God. He, he uses this metaphor many times, like, like to Timothy. I, I, I fought the good fight. I'm, I'm, I finished the faith. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to be poured out. He does the same thing with the Philippians. I, I'm, a, I'm a drink offering poured out on your faith. He'll use it again in Romans 12. Your reasonable service unto the Lord. Your, you offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Your reasonable service, as the King James says. It's your spiritual service of worship. How do you worship God now that you've come to Christ, now that Christ has come, is not through dead animals on, a, on an altar, but your living life every day, offered to, to Him. That, that's how you serve God. And Paul's saying, as I have offered myself unto the Lord, this is how I am serving Him. And I'm serving Him in, in taking the gospel and hoping to be able to, to come to you. And he says, I serve him in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son. Uh, the, he describes where he serves him and how he serves him. You might serve him in a different way. You might, you, you might serve him running a backhoe or reconciling an accounting spreadsheet but, uh, or learning Hebrew paradigms if you're in seminary. Um, everything that you do is worship. Paul says, here's where I serve him and how I serve him. I, I serve him in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of, of his son. The preaching of the gospel is the sphere of Paul's service, and he does that out of his heart. The phrase, in my spirit, is, is open to many interpretations. There's some that I didn't, weren't even, uh, I'm, I weren't even, wasn't even aware of, and I read them. Uh, one commentator, uh, Cranfield, that lists seven possibilities for this. I just think if you read it, the natural, natural rendering is what Paul's saying here. He's saying, in my spirit, in my spirit, in, in the very core of who I am, it's like pointing to the depth and sincerity of his service. I serve God out of, the, out of the very center of my heart and my life. It's what makes me tick. I mean, he, he means he serves God from the very depths of his soul. That, that service involves pro proclaiming the, the gospel concerning his son. The, the gospel of his son is the subject matter of Paul's message. It's the focal point of, of his service. That's what I do. That, that's how I, how I serve God. It's, it's why he's giving thanks and why he wants to come to, get, come to them. I mean, that makes sense, right? I mean, if you're a fireman... And you're driving down the road, and you hear the siren. You, you know, you get all giddy and all excited, and you get to put your stuff on and go wherever it is. I mean, the siren goes off for us, and we're thinking, "How do I get through the light before everything locks up and the trucks go by?" It's not what a fireman thinks. Where's it at? What's happening? Somebody's in need. I, I, I got to get there. If you're an airline pilot, you 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 want to be around airplanes. And if you're the Apostle Paul, you want to be where the gospel is advancing. And, and where it's needed. So what are you thankful for? Where do you want to be? What makes you tick? What analogy of a fireman or, or an airline pilot would, would correlate with, with your life? I mean, if you could be anywhere and do anything this morning, where would that be? The answer is going to reveal a lot about your heart and what you're consumed with. But Paul doesn't just gratefully pray for them. 
He's longing to, to serve them. So there's this continual longing. He's longing to impart some gift, and he's longing to be encouraged. Look, look if you would at verse 11. He goes on. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. He's not just hoping to get there, but he wants to do something when he arrives, that you may be established or strengthened. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and, and mine. So verse 11 and 12 explains a, a little further. He's asking God to go in verse 10, and now he says what he hopes to accomplish when he finally arrives. And he spells out two things. I want to impart some spiritual gift to you, and I want to be mutually, I want to be mutually encouraged by, by you. He, he starts with his service and then moves to, to their encouragement. And Paul's already revealed to us what this spiritual gift is that, that he wants to impart. It's not like Paul wants to go and use his spiritual gift of administration or his spiritual gift of help. That's not what he means here. Paul never uses this phrase the way that it's put together uh, anywhere where he's talking about individual spiritual gifts. And notice he also says, I want to impart some spiritual gift to you. So it's a particular gift that, that he wants to, to give. And Paul's not just going to say, I'm going to single out one gift. I'm not going to tell you which one it is. Maybe it's helps, maybe it's administration, but I'm going to give you that one when I get there. doesn't make sense. And notice he says why he wants to give them this, this specific gift. And in verse 11, For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. It means that, that you may be strengthened in your faith. The reason that, that I want to come, the reason that I want to do this. What I want to give you is going to make you strong. So whatever Paul wants to give them, it's to strengthen them spiritually to make them strong in their faith. And the spiritual gift that he wants to give them is, is what he writes about in the letter. It, it's the gospel. He wants to give them the message that, that he preaches. Don't think that the gospel is just for unsaved people. And don't think that the gospel, don't trunk at it, truncated that the gospel is only the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's the good news of what God has been doing from eternity past, and it goes through Christ all the way to the consummation whenever we will be fully redeemed and before the Lord. He doesn't want to just write about this. He wants to share it in person because, because that's what the gospel does. It, it builds your faith. Faith comes by hearing the gospel, and faith is strengthened by the gospel. But he doesn't want them to get the wrong idea. He's not just coming there to, to give them something. He anticipates being encouraged by them as well. Look at verse 12. Notice he's explaining further. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and, and mine. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you. Now, Paul's saying this is not a one-way street. I, I will receive a, a blessing even as I give one. Um, last week, whenever I was uh, headed out of town, about to head out of town for, for, for Founders, I would have, I was struggling a little bit. I would have much rather been, been here with you. This was a conference that was, was planned back during COVID in 2020, and it was delayed, and now it comes in 2021, and, and I'm getting ready to fly out at 
3 o'clock in the morning, and, and uh, I hate being away from you. I, I don't like being out of this, this pulpit. And I was already studying for, for this passage, and I kept quoting this verse to myself. The Lord has ordained this. This is part of His plan. And so, Lord, I, I want to go and impart some spiritual gift to these brothers and sisters there, and I want to be encouraged by them in return. And, and I was. Paul's already been giving thanks to God for their faith, uh, for the faith of the Roman believers, and what he expects when he, when, when he gets among them is, is when they start talking about the gospel, he starts telling them about the gospel, that, that, that he'll be encouraged uh, as well. And Paul's been praying to come, and he's saying when, when, when God finally grants that possibility, I'm going to be cheered by, by being there and by, by being among you. And you think of it this way. Are you not encouraged whenever you sit in the pews on Sunday night and listen to those baptism testimonies? I mean, they're being baptized. They're the ones making the public profession. They're blessed, obviously, when they're thinking about how God saved them. But are you not blessed as well as you gather together and then even as you talk to others afterwards? Wow, that reminded me of how I was saved. Yeah, me too. I think one of the most mutually encouraging things that we can hear about is how God saved us. We listen to the grace of God and we're mutually encouraged to it. But Paul's probably even thinking beyond that. He believes that when he shares this gospel, it's going to strengthen them. And when they hear what he preaches, they'll be, they'll be encouraged and he'll be encouraged. And then they'll want to help him reach Spain with that same gospel. But I don't want you to miss probably the most important thing about this, this verse. I want you to notice when this mutual encouragement is going to happen. Where it's going to happen is probably the better way of saying it. Look at verse 12. That is that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and, and mine. Paul is not just saying... Uh, it's just going to be me as an apostle imparting something. I'm not going to be like the preacher unloading and then, and then, and then leaving. This is about mutual encouragement, strengthening one another's faith. But he says that happens at church when we're gathered together. Um, when, we are, um, when I'm among you, when I'm in your midst, that mutual strengthening happens when God's body is gathered together and adheres the gospel. That means you can't strengthen one another from the couch or from somewhere else. Um, I am thankful for media and those kinds of things to connect Timberlakers who, who for whatever reason, can't be here. But there is no, absolutely no replacement for physical gathering. And when that happens, when you gather, it's exactly what Hebrews is saying. You provoke one another to love and good works, and Paul's echoing that in a different way. I mean, in fact, when you think about it, you can't get either one of these things through virtual church. Um, you can't get the ongoing gift of the gospel and preaching and teaching from the pastors and the teachers and the church, the shepherding that goes along with that. It's not just hearing a message. You also can't get the mutual encouragement of other believers. And you say, that's great. And it is. But if Paul's praying to come, it's going to be that great whenever he gets there. What's the holdup? <laughs> I mean, 
finished his three missionary journeys, well, that's what he explains next. He said, I'm humbly appraising uh, or, or, or informing. What's he appraising uh, uh, them of? I, I plan to come. I've been prevented by providence. When I get there, though, I, I, I want to harvest some, some fruit. Verse 13. I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul uses one of his favorite statements when he wants people to pay attention. Um, your mother may have had a phrase that she used to get your attention. Hey, uh, maybe it was an I, or in my case, it was probably all three of my names, William Brian Farrell, and you paid attention. Well, Paul has a phrase. I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, the King James says. And he uses this many times. He, I think probably one that you, you will recall is 1 Thessalonians 4. The Thessalonians believed that the, the Lord had already come and people was to, you know, others had died. And he's like, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. Paul's informing them, though, about why he, why he hasn't come yet. I don't want you to get the wrong idea about why I haven't come. And that would be a natural question for them. I mean, if Paul's the great apostle to the Gentiles, and, and we've heard about him, why hasn't he been to Rome yet, the capital of the, of the Gentiles? And Paul's saying, it's not out of neglect or snubbing you. I didn't have something better to do. One of the natural obstacles would, would be the Jews were expelled from Rome, and so Paul was a Jew. He couldn't come during that, that time. But, but I think that what Paul points to here is something much deeper than what's going on on a human level or what the Roman government's doing. When you put verse 10 and verse 13 together, you get a picture of how divine providence works and how you relate to it. I mean, this section teaches us about God's sovereignty and our responsibility. I mean, think about this. Paul has already said he's a called apostle. Christ has already set him apart for the task. He's already been sent by Christ. He's already been told that he's an apostle to the Gentiles. And his purpose has already been given, to bring about obedience of the faith. And, and Paul is going after it, isn't he? he? He's been praying. He's been writing. He's already done three missionary uh, journeys. He, He's longing. He's trying to get to them. I mean, Paul is being obedient. He, he's fulfilling his obligation, his, his duty, his responsibility. I mean, there is no moss growing on the uh, Apostle Paul. Paul's not sitting back going, well, God will save the elect. Whatever will be, will be. That's not the Apostle Paul. But you will find nobody who believed in God's sovereign grace stronger than the Apostle Paul. And you see both of those things going on in this passage. Paul is active and obedient, but all of that responsibility is controlled by the Lord. Now look at what he says in verse 10. He says, he fulfills his calling as the Lord wills. Verse 10, always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. And here in, in this verse, uh, he says that he's been prevented by the Lord, from fulfilling that desire in Rome. That's the sovereignty part. But, but Paul's been praying. He's been asking God to, 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 to open the door. He's been doing that continuously, habitually. I want to go. I want to go, Lord. I want to go. I'll submit to you, but I want to go. 
Uh, Colin Cruz says, Paul recognizes that the progress of his life and ministry is determined by the will of God, not simply his own plans. And Paul had desires, but these were subordinated to God's will. He's content to allow the Lord to order his steps and his mission. Are you? Now, the Apostle Paul, don't over-spiritualize him. He got up and put his pants on just like you did. Well, maybe a little different since he didn't have pants, but you know what I mean. He, uh, he knew what he was called to do, and he just went and did it. He didn't worry about who to witness to. He just witnessed to whoever he could. He didn't worry about finding God's will. He knew God's will would find him as he was being obedient. And when God finally answers this prayer that Paul records here, Paul, God answers it, and he permits Paul to go to Rome. It's not what Paul expected, was it? I mean, he goes in chains, and he doesn't go to the church. He, he, he goes as a prisoner, but because he's a prisoner, he's able to preach the gospel to Caesar's household it, it, itself. Much greater. You see, you can fall into either side of the ditch on this, on this road of sovereignty and responsibility. You can hunt and look for God's will and wrangle over mystical impressions and never do much for the Lord other than contemplating all those things. Believe me, I've been there. That kind of serving is paralyzing. We don't need to do that. God's already told us what to do. You just do what you know to do. But the other side of the ditch that you can't forget is, is that as we're doing, we have limited vision, and we always think too small. And I don't mean numerically. I mean spiritually. Paul wanted to go reap a harvest amongst the church, and, and maybe the people that they knew, but Paul had no idea that the spiritual harvest that God was going to reap through him was part of the Praetorian Guard and even Caesar's household. And that wouldn't have been possible if God would have answered Paul's prayer in the way that Paul was probably asking. But Paul keeps asking. Which is why it's important to remain, remain submissive in prayer and not kick against the Lord when He doesn't immediately give you what you ask for. God always has better plans than the ones that we come up with. and Even whenever He says no. and Because the souls that, that are saved are the Lord's harvest anyway. Look, look if you would at verse 13. I don't want you to be unaware, brethren. I've often planned to come to you, but I've been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. The, the word harvest there literally means some certain fruit. John Murray said the idea is expressed that Paul wants to gather fruit. He's not bearing fruit, which is exactly what Jesus says to his disciples. Again, sovereignty, responsibility, and, and what Jesus says. Uh, do you not say that there are four months and then comes the harvest? Get off your duffs, boys. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that, that are white for harvest. And then in Matthew 9, Jesus tells them who is the Lord of the harvest. But, but he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And the fields are white, and they're ready, and it's God's harvest. And you're just the laborer that gathers God's harvest in. But Paul says, I want to labor. <laughs> I want to be in the middle of the field. And Paul says that God has a harvest in Rome. He knows that. It's one of the greatest comforts that you have in 
in witnessing or, or in missions is that, that God has a harvest. And some of it's in the barn, Paul says. Uh, you believers, I want to strengthen you. But Paul also knows that God still has a, a harvest on the stalk. And I want to go gather it, he says. And Paul knew exactly what kind of fruit he was looking for. He's already completed these three missionary journeys. He knows what spiritual fruit looks like. And so he's saying, now I hope to come there and see God do the same thing. I'm longing for fruitful labor uh, among you. It's not like looking uh, to establish uh, the the gospel. He wants to go even beyond that to, to Spain. And I ask myself the question, I mean, is that how I see my life? Is that how you see your life? Um, One lived for a spiritual harvest, one that is all about responsibility, what I know to do, and and yet at the same time it's subordinated to the will of God. I know God is is ultimately in in charge, but but I do all of that. I realize all of that because what I really want is a spiritual harvest. I I want to gather the wheat into the barn much of your life is lived for all kinds of things. Um, and it doesn't even have to be, you know, a preacher or missionary. You Don't get me wrong. You can use the things that will perish for, for a spiritual harvest, but, but is that how you view them? You accumulate those things with that in mind. Paul says he has a specific focus. A specific focus of his life was all about a spiritual harvest. And then, and then he tells us why. Here's number four. He says, because I'm divinely obligated. I'm divinely obligated because of my calling in general, that's his apostolic calling in verse 14, and and because of the Romans' inclusion specifically in that that calling. Verse 15, look at verse 14. I'm under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish, For my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why has Paul been praying to get to Rome? Why does he want to win fruit and a harvest among them? Why does he want to preach the gospel when he gets to Rome? Well, verse 14 tells us he's obligated. Um, He's a debtor. He's obligated to Greeks and non-Greeks to to seek this, this fruit. And now you understand the connection of his introduction as, a, as an apostle and an apostle to the Gentiles, and, 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 and now it becomes very clear in, in his purpose for, for writing. He introduces himself, his calling, and his message, and, and now he shows the Roman believers how, how they're connected to all three. He's an apostle of the Gentiles. He wants to go to Rome to preach the gospel, and that's what verse 15 means. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. It's not like, oh, this is a ball and chain. I, I, I'm a debtor, but, but I'm, a, I'm just full of, of eagerness to fulfill this, this obligation. His coming to them is an extension of his apostleship, and his prayer is an extension of his apostleship. And In fact, he's, he's called to take the gospel everywhere, and he's seeking to do that. that that's why he says what he says in verse 13, and why he talks about a harvest. The word obligated, literally a debtor. I'm in debt to this task. I, I have a calling from God. I'm set apart for the gospel. And Paul will say it a different way in 1 Corinthians 9.16. Woe is me, or woe unto me, if I preach not the, the gospel. And so he rounds out this section by saying, 
his obligation is to take the gospel everywhere. You see that? Both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. To, to the Greeks, every non-Greek was a barbarian. There were Romans and there were everybody else. Um, it's an onomatopoeia word, meaning it's, it's, a, it's a word that, that, that's, uh, that imitates their unintelligible sound of their language. Uh, bar, bar, ois, bar, bar, bar. They're, they're just babblers. That's the, kind of the idea. Everybody who's non-Greek, they're unsophisticated. And Paul says, I'm coming to the, the Greeks and the, the non-Greeks, to those who are wise, those who are foolish, you might not be as wise as you think you are, according to 1 Corinthians 3. <laughs> to the Roman mind, the Jews were uneducated and foolish, and they would even fall into that barbarian category. They, they were atheists because they didn't believe in God. And, but Paul says uh, all of them need the gospel. Jew, Greek, wise, foolish, everyone in between. No matter what you, you rejoice in about how God has his harvest or what you rejoice about God's grace and it's all Him and, and how He's the one that grants faith and repentance, don't ever limit the gospel in its proclamation. It's to go to all people all over the world. I, I think at the, the death of Polycarp, um, he understood exactly what Paul was saying here. You probably remember Polycarp, um, 86 years I've served you and why deny him now? He was a disciple of, of John. But do you know how Polycarp died, specifically how he was martyred? He didn't deny the Lord. He was martyred. But do you know the, the story of, of how that took place? Polycarp was, uh, was brought into an arena on the day of his martyrdom, and he, and he was placed in, in front of a crowd. So there's a, there's a great crowd behind him, and they're looking at him, and he's there. He's a, he's a bishop. He's a leader in the church, so... They put him out front, and behind him is a whole group of other Christians that, that have been gathered up to be martyred as well. And, and they look like what you would picture in a concentration camp. They've been beaten and starved. They're, they're in shackles. Polycarp didn't look too, too, too good either because he'd been in hiding, and he's 86 years old. And, and because he's the leader and of his age, they, they, they give him an opportunity um, to, to recant his faith. And if he does, he'll be pardoned. And it's a pretty simple way. I mean, he doesn't have to say, I hate Christ or I, I deny Christ. He, it's a very subtle way. They tell him if, if he turns, he's standing there in front of everybody, if he would just turn to the Christians behind him and say, away with the atheists, he does that publicly before the crowd, then, then they'll accept that as a recantation. Away with the atheists. I'm, I'm not part of them. And so when that moment comes and the crowd is at a, as a hush, the start of the execution, they're waiting on Polycarp's statement, and rather than turning to the Christians, he, he looks at the amphitheater, he runs his finger up and down, and he says, away with the atheists. <laughs> and Polycarp died that day. And when, when death comes for you, you're going to be part of one of those two crowds you're going to be either sitting in the amphitheater um, thinking that you might know God or gods. But if God doesn't know you, if you're not in that other crowd, as, 
as a Christian, somebody who's confessed Christ, um, then on that day, you'll be like an atheist. He'll say, depart from me, I, I, I never knew you. And the only way to be in the Christian crowd is to embrace the gospel that Paul was called to preach. Whether you're, you're Roman or, or not, or sophisticated or not, or wise or foolish or Jew or Gentile, everyone comes to God the exact same way, through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of his son. Chew by your heads. We're going to end our service with taking of communion. So I want to invite the men up to do that. As you're there, your head's bowed, and you're just searching your heart for in preparation for, for taking communion. You don't have to be a member of Timberlake Baptist Church. Guys, you can go ahead and get the, the trays there if you would. Give them to the men. You don't have to be a member to take communion. You do need to be part of the family of God, though, so if you're not a believer, you just let it pass in front of you. If you are, take it and uh, rejoice in in what God has, has done. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you have opened our eyes and we are gathered this morning to worship your Son, and He is our God. And we confess Him and no other. We believe in Him and no other. And we trust fully in Him and, and, and nothing else. We want You to get glory out of our lives and we remember that through, through this table. Thank You for washing us clean. Thank You for Christ. We ask all of this in His name. Amen.